after the five hindrances as content of our thinking, our thoughts, comes again the paragraph about insight, how we gain it other than knowing what there is. So we contemplate them as being within ourselves, but having actually understood that we ourselves are liable to have these, one of these five hindrances in our mind at any time, we also understand that others have it also in their minds. And becoming compassionate and accepting towards oneself and tolerant, one becomes the same towards others. That doesn't mean that we don't make, uh, don't strive or don't um, practice to get rid of these hindrances, but we do not feel guilty or blame ourselves and neither do we do that to others. So it's in ourselves and externally. We can see in others what we can see in ourselves. And that's why the saying goes, only a Buddha knows a Buddha. Only when we ourselves are enlightened will we know when we are confronted with an enlightened one. Otherwise, all our judgments are at fault. <coughs> However, having sensual desire, ill will, sloth and torpor, restlessness and worry and uncertainty in ourselves, we know all the same things in others too. No problem at all. So when we become accepting towards ourselves, we will do the same for others. <coughs> in ourselves and externally. We can contemplate and uh, realize the arising and the vanishing. Whatever has arisen must vanish. It's a law of nature. And we can choose whether we contemplate the one, the other, or both. When we become mindful enough to see the arising and vanishing, of course, we have more <coughs> um, introspection. When we only see the vanishing or only see the arising, our mindfulness hasn't really come to grips with the existing situation yet. However, there comes a time in the practice of insight when we become aware of the vanishing only. Everything seems to be disappearing and rather quickly. And if one hasn't had the um, stability and peacefulness of the jhanas as a base for one's introspection, one may feel quite fearful about this very new experience of everything falling apart constantly. And it seems to follow in such quick order that the arising does not seem to be 
a, um, an important aspect of it. One just sees the falling apart of everything. If that happens with, uh, when one has practiced calm and has a basis in that, there's no fear connected with it. It just is. So this is one aspect of seeing only vanishing factors. Aspects, vanishing aspects. And also very strong mindfulness again, where we see, well, these are just contents of mind without personal identification will help us to eventually have that perspective and also the experience where we are no longer identified with the personal entity with which we are now identified, but can go beyond that into a level of consciousness where personal entities do not exist, where there is existence as a whole, where there just is, or where there just things are as they are without that interfering mind of naming and categorizing. Our mind has a habit of naming and categorizing. And because things don't always fit into the same category that we have, if it doesn't fit into the same one as somebody else's category, we have disagreements. Totally unnecessary if we get to the point where everything is just as it is. And this is what is meant with the sentence, not clinging to anything in the world. Because now a person seeing content of mind just as that, or the same sentence applied to all the other mindfulness foundations, um, mind as mind, feelings as feelings, um, body as body. And if that is established to the extent of bare knowledge, then there is independence, not clinging to anything in the world, because the world is seen for what it is, nothing but an arising and vanishing factor. So these are possibilities for insight, particularly, of course, seeing the hindrances in oneself without blame, but also without justification. They just are. And the more we purify through our meditative practice and through the other practices that the Buddha explained, the uh, less, the, the weaker they become. Now the next um, aspect which we can contemplate as a content of our mind moments are the five aggregates. Well, <laughs> in a way, one could say you're not, because having been born a human being, you've got them, okay? But not to do anything about them, that is a responsibility one should not, one should not um, uh, let go. In other words, we do have the responsibility, we do something about them, 
But that they're there in the first place is as natural as having two arms, two hands, two eyes, and a nose. But since those things which I've just named are useful to you, you keep them. But since the hindrances are not useful to oneself, one tries to do something about them. So our responsibility lies in the fact of doing something about them. to do something about them. No, that goes a little bit already in the supernatural. <laughs> Most people don't even know they've got them. They think everybody else has them. But they themselves, of course, are immune. It's very strong, it's very odd. That's how people have so many difficulties with each other. Everybody's got the hindrances except me. Oh, I haven't got them. Everybody else has them. So how do you live in that kind of situation? You can't, you know. That's why people can't get along with each other. There is this. The Buddha said, having been born a human being, it's a very rare occasion. And one should make the best use of it. And if one feels that that is a responsibility with which one is born, making the best use of being a human being, one should try to purify and purification and growth and spiritual growth to make that one's priority. However, those people that do that are definitely the minority. Even those who go, uh, you know, who sort of get attached to some sort of esoteric interest are still not necessarily doing this. Else. Someone else, usually. Such people usually do not recognize their own hindrances. They only recognize other people's hindrances. Mm -hmm. <coughs> it's much easier to see the splinter in somebody else's eye than to see that tree trunk in one's own. <laughs> but this is what the we see that's where the Buddha's instructions are so um, very down to earth and so important and helpful because it makes us look into ourselves rather than into other people. And what we see in other people, we only not see anyway what we have ourselves, because otherwise we wouldn't know what it is. If I look at something in the mirror and I've never seen it before, would I know what it is? Right? Anything else about hindrances as content of mind? Any other questions? No. All right. Five aggregates. Again, a bhikkhu abides contemplating dhammas as dhammas in terms of the five aggregates affected by clinging. And how does a bhikkhu abide contemplating dhammas as dhammas in terms of the five aggregates affected by clinging? Here, a bhikkhu knows such its form, such its origin, such its disappearance, such its feeling, such its origin, such its disappearance, such its perception, origin, and disappearance. Such are formations, origin and disappearance, such as consciousness, such origin and disappearance. 
five aggregates. Oh, that's all it says about them. Not very much. <laughs> the Buddha says the five aggregates are all we consist of. And again, he urges us to analyze ourselves in this manner to see whether there's anything else. Now, traditionally, these five aggregates are always listed in the um, form. They're listed here in that sequence. And they don't arise in that sequence, though. So what we are looking at is the first one, which is called form here, which is materiality, body. The word rupa in Pali can be translated as form, materiality, corporality, or body. In this case, we should stick to the word body, although the translator didn't, but I think it makes life more difficult if we don't have the word body there, because what are we looking at? Body. Right? And then, as they are listed in this sequence, the next four which are listed are all part of mind but they do not arise in that sequence funnily enough the last one arises first sense consciousness and uh, it just may, it just says consciousness here in the translation but definitely meant sense consciousness seeing hearing tasting touching, smelling, and also thinking. These are the six sense consciousnesses. And the way they're described, maybe in the next one. No. Um, the way they are described are like this. There is a sense base, there is a sense object when when there is the sense basis of in good order and there is a sense object and when then the sense consciousness arises and the three meet you have the sense action which means you have an I EYE which is in good order you have something that can be seen here something a sense and eye object so as the eye and these get together, the sense consciousness arises and seeing results. You have to have three things come together in order to have the action. Of course, the Buddha wants us to analyze ourselves into these small parts so that we lose this identification process where I can see something I'm seeing and therefore it is either ugly or beautiful. It's nothing of the kind. The seeing process has started. Now to continue with that particular sense consciousness, the next thing that arises is the feeling, which is here as the first one. We can particularly easily understand this when we think of the fact that we get a painful feeling in the sitting posture. We wouldn't get that painful feeling if we hadn't 
crossed our legs so there's first the touch contact and then comes the painful feeling after that comes the perception which is the namer which says pain or unpleasant and after that comes the mental formation the word formation here yes is it time before you how can you there are oh i see what you're asking about the feelings are you okay there are three kinds of feelings pleasant painful and neutral and because we don't recognize neutral we always dealing either with pleasant and painful only when the neutral feeling disappears are we upset either when it's painful or delighted when it's pleasant so first comes the feeling which is either pleasant or unpleasant and then the mind says pain so the feeling doesn't have to have a naming in it but because everything happens so quickly we never analyze we never stop to know that this is what's happening so the feeling arises first which is either pleasant or unpleasant so just forget about the neutral one at the moment because we don't ever pay attention to it anyway and uh, if we pay attention to all the things that the buddha tells us in this one sutta we're doing well <laughs> so then comes the word pain which hmm? is speaking this the word pain arises and after that comes the mental formation which is also called the karma formation because now we react and we say i don't like this at all it's the last time i'm going to meditate i don't like all these pains in my knees there must be an easier way to become enlightened or whatever else the mind likes to say if the mind says i don't like it it's making bad karma because of dislike if it has a pleasant feeling and if the the mind the perception says uh, pleasure or wonderful and then the mind says i want to keep it it's making bad karma because of clinging and craving so whatever reaction we have unless it is one which says such is a feeling we are making some sort of karma which has to do with wanting to keep or wanting to get rid of that's why the formations which are in pali sankaras are also called the karma formations this is where we make karma up to this point everything is totally neutral sense contact everybody has who has senses feelings everybody has perception everybody has but the mental reaction the mental formation is has to become our own choice these are the called the pancha upadana khandas pancha is five upadana is clinging and khandas are the aggregates the five aggregates of clinging and why are they called that because this is where the i identification the me concept arises because we cling to these five now very good inside meditation practice one which can be extremely helpful is to recognize first of all the sequence how it happens which is an analytical way of looking at oneself 
taking oneself apart into bits and pieces. And then, secondly, becoming aware of the fact that actually we have that notion that if this is me seeing something, me feeling something, me perceiving it, and me reacting it. And then trying to ascertain where does this me notion arise from? Where is it coming from? And you will find it's nothing but a mental construct. But the mental construct arises out of a deep-rooted desire. Find that desire and it makes this knee illusion clearer. This is a Buddhist um, uh, suggestion and uh, advocates it in many different uh, discourses to investigate these five aggregates as to our ownership idea. And helpful in that respect is, of course, also to see the arising and vanishing of it, such as in feeling and in mind moments. This is not difficult to do. Perception the same. Sense contact also quite easy to see the arising and vanishing of it. And um, Again, as in that other uh, paragraph there, to see it not only in the arising and vanishing, but also in just being factors without that me idea in, embedded in them. It's not an easy thing to do. It works better if one has become calm first in the meditation, but it's extremely valuable and helpful to see things as they really are. With the body, the arising and vanishing factors can be seen in the breath, in the heartbeat, and in the aging process, which we know but can't actually see because we haven't got that kind of mindfulness. The five aggregates are the basic cause for our illusion or delusion. And the Buddha's instructions are also that if upadana, clinging, is eliminated, nibbana is experienced. So whether we consider our mind contact in the terms of hindrances or in terms of five aggregates, either way will be inside path. The whole of this um, discourse, except the very first part where it said to watch the breath that goes in and out, uh, is uh, inside meditation. 
uh, all of these uh, different aspects are all de designed for insight meditation. Yet, every all insight meditation has much better chance of succeeding when the calm has arisen in the mind first. Now, are there any questions on the five aggregates? Yes, but when a feeling arises, you don't ordinarily think of it as feeling. You ordinarily think of it as I'm feeling. The classification of all of them together is usually used as human being or man or woman or can be sort of certainly me, but the uh, basic delusion lies in the fact that each one of them is considered to be me. Each one of these five. The next time you're thinking something, right, like right now, who's thinking? You or somebody else? Or nobody? You know? So that's a, a, a thought process going on at the moment, which you're quite sure, I'm sure, you think <laughs> is yours. <laughs> And this is where we can um, cut into. These are all possibilities of um, getting a handle on, on a totally different perception of ourselves. Now, obviously, the possibility exists that through the jhanic um, um, absorption through the calm in the mind, a totally different um, perception of oneself also arises um, spontaneously through the uh, mind having a different level of consciousness in the jhanas. However, the Buddha did recommend both ways, investigating in this way and also using the jhanas for the mind to have that different level of consciousness. So this investigation is a very important thing to do, and particularly when the mind is ill at ease, restless, uneasy, um, aggressive, wants to, um, very um, uh, desiring. These are moments when this investigation can be very helpful. Because that's when we are confronted with the difficulty. And when we are confronted with the difficulty, we need a remedy. These are the remedies. Naturally, if we were enlightened, we wouldn't have any difficulties, we wouldn't need any remedies. But seeing we're not, we, uh, we have all this stuff in us. And in this case, it's upadana, it's clinging. Hmm? Sankara is a mental formation which is happening now. 
but it can be translated as karma formation because mental formation makes our karma. We are making karma with our mental formations. But how they are shaped has something to do with previous uh, experiences. Um, yes, most of it has to do with our experiences now. They're shaping of them, yes. But the happening is now. It doesn't have anything to do with any previous lives. It's now. It's a mental formation which is happening now. Which can have, which has, not can have, which has certainly been uh, influenced from past mental formation. The mental formation which I'm having this moment is influencing the next one. This has been going on and on and on and on, backward, 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 more and more. But there's nothing we can do about that. We can only influence the one now. Anything else? Would you say, um, I mentioned yesterday, I was doing an insight meditation, I was like hearing a sound, and then mentioned that a memory would come up, and then I know the mind state sometimes connected with it. I was trying to figure out if that was part of perception, or if it was like further on down, like mental formation. Well, the, the, the sound was your sense of consciousness connecting, right? right? Yeah. And then the the memory that came up, memory and perception belong together. So you first had a feeling from it, which you bypass, we often do, yeah, sure. because we're usually in our heads rather than in our feelings. But there was a feeling. And perception is um, based on memory. So whatever you... Sorry? So it's Part of trying to name the feeling? Mm, mm, yes. Perception is the naming. Yes, perception is the naming, and the memory that uh, arose in you was the perception of it. Belongs together. You see, if this, the child that has no memory of clock cannot name clock, it can only name building block or whatever. It can't name anything, probably can name toy. There's no memory. But as the sound and the feeling, then uh, some memory arose so that the perception said that was that. And that always, this is always connected with memory. Only we don't have it so clear. This is connected with our memory of having been told that this is a clock. But because we're so used to it, we are not aware of this memory arising. Yeah. Well, the reason I even thought that was because I heard a sound that I couldn't recognize. Uh -huh. And... And, and the, like some kind of very strange idea of what the sound was came up. Mm -hmm. you know, it sounded like some strange instrument I heard before and I knew it could possibly be. Mm. But it, that was the first thing that came to my mind. Yes. That was your perception of it. Yeah. And then the mental formation would either say, I like it, or I don't like it, or um, I'm uh, always neutral about it and has no either like or dislike but tells a story about it. I've heard it before. 
I haven't heard it. Yeah. Is it possible to combine science and perception? Because something that is real that you don't know is a side of it. Perception says, I don't know. It's a don't know. Uh, it is possible to stop perceptions deliberately uh, in a meditative state, sound only not to um, name the kind of sound it is. However, in other words, not even the word sound, nothing. Just that coming together. It's not an easy thing to do. Must not, the mind must not even say sound because sound is already perception. So um, that's a possibility. That's pure mindfulness. Utter and complete mindfulness. So um, that such thing is possible, but uh, perception can say, I don't know. Yeah. Well, that's based on the memory that I don't know. <laughs> yes, it's, it's nothing in there. It's a memory of not having it. Yes. So if you don't name hearing a sound, what, what happens? Nothing. Sense consciousness. So that the mind would just know sense consciousness? As long as it knows that, it wouldn't, wouldn't be much um, uh, usefulness. In meditation, for instance, one can be absorbed enough uh, so that Although the absorption isn't deep enough to cut out sound, the uh, sound itself does not intrude, and it doesn't even come to the point of sound, saying sound. One is aware of it, the sense consciousness is aware of it, but in such a remote manner that it has no impact on the mind, the mind can't stay absorbed. So that is when, they, uh, um, when there's no, no perception and no feeling about it. But as soon as the mind says sense consciousness, it's got perception in it. So, knowing that that sound is there and holding it, um, but not needing to name it, um, that in fact would be the actual description of the purification of perception, would it not? Well, as soon as the mind says there's sound, it's already perception. Mm -hmm. But I'm not talking about that. I'm saying when it, when it doesn't have to name it, and it can just hold it. Hold what? Well, the sense consciousness of sound is, there's no holding to it. It's usually very, very um, quick, isn't it? I mean, there's no hanging on to that sort of thing. Well, I was using the term hold there as knowing it to be a part of consciousness. Mm. And the way you said it was, if there are noises happening, um, when you're absorbed, you don't need to name them. You don't even need to say that this is sound. Right. The, the, the sense consciousness is aware of the fact that something has hit the eardrum, but it doesn't name a thing. 
neither sound nor the name of the sound. It stays with what it was doing. That's not mindfulness, that's being otherwise engaged. Pure mindfulness would be that you could do that even without being otherwise engaged. Is that clear? It would be a very, very strong mindfulness which is, um, which is very difficult to practice. In other words, the mind is only engaged in mindfulness and not in absorption in something else. So my question is, is that a description of the purification of perception? There's no need to purify perception. We need to purify mental formation. There's no need to purify perception. Perception just is based on memory. We need to purify mental formation. And mental formation is the one that says this is me. And as we, as we are concerned with this me, that's where we, the purification sets in. The perception is only, is only the, um, the way the memory has uh, imbued itself with us. We don't, we don't concern ourselves with that. We concern ourselves with our reactions. And the reactions is where we purify. So the reaction to this idea here that we have about ourselves, that's where we purify. Yeah. Oh, really? So when perception seems to be based on expectation, for example, um, you hear a car come down the road and you think, oh, it's going to be so and so, and say, mental formation, that's so and so, and it's just a snowball, it's the baker. Um, is that still memory, still in the category of perception based on memory? No, that's already the mental formation. That's a baker, or oh, that's not the baker, that's a mental formation. The perception says, uh, and then the mental formation says, oh, I hope it's, uh, I don't know who, it's uh, my friend. And actually it isn't your friend. So the perception is very quick. It's a very momentary thing that happens. Whereas the mental formation can go on and on and on and on and make all sorts of stories about it. Yeah. Yes. Memory actually uh, is the uh, um, our base for perception. Without memory, we wouldn't be able to perceive properly. Now, so people are what we call mentally ill. They perceive things in a totally different way from the way we do, because their their memories are based on totally different aspects of it. And uh, but where we where we hook into is our mental formation, which is our reaction. And that's where we hook into. If I, were, I have talked about the fact that, I remember saying that, that from feeling to craving, 
this is where we can step out. Remember that? Okay. Now here we have the word perception in between, naming the things. But actually it's exactly the same thing. Again, from feeling to the mental formation is where we have a chance to make a choice. The perception, we have very little chance to make choices. I mean, when we hear a car, we know it's a car, as nobody in the world can tell us it's an airplane. We know exactly it's a car, and we know what an airplane sounds like, right? But we can make a choice whether we are now disappointed because the car doesn't bring what we wanted, or whether we're delighted because it did bring what we wanted, or whether we're just totally neutral about it. So we have exactly the same thing again, from feeling to craving, from feeling to mental formation, which can be either craving or rejection or neutrality. And the perception which arises in between is something that we also um, make many mistakes on because our memories are based on different things. Now, if we come from different cultures, for instance, Our childhood memories are totally different. And anyone who's ever lived in a totally different culture knows that what we don't even notice, maybe, the other people think it's either dreadful or fantastic. We don't even notice it because we haven't got that in our memory. So with our perceptions, we are very much bound to that which we know. But with the mental formations, we have a choice with a reaction. There we have a choice. So it is very important that we can see that as one of our um, ways of practice and also by analyzing into these five different aspects of ourselves that we get a little bit of a hang on the matter that we are not really one whole solid lump even though we look like one that this is just an imagination that we consist of all these different pieces, bits and pieces. Imagination meaning image, image form. Yes, we have this image of one big lump which is called me and which thinks and feels and reacts in certain ways to certain things because of all sorts of justifications, but it isn't so. There's a constant movement going on, constantly something happening. It's very interesting, once um, one really uh, starts using this as a mindfulness practice, as an inside meditation practice, maybe I should say, it becomes extremely interesting to see that this person, which we have taken for granted for years on end, is not that person at all. There is no such person that we can take for granted. That person doesn't exist. There's a constant input through the senses. And with that constant input through the senses, there's a constant different feeling, perception, and mental formation. And all this is happening in waking moments, almost uh, in, in such quick succession that we can hardly keep up with it. Because it's a little difficult to keep up with it, we make the choice right from the start. We don't want to know about it. This is a very interesting insight uh, formation, insight path. This is quite clear how to investigate this. Very important. 
one can use it for a meditation subject. Debbie looks worried. Something worrying about this? No. Okay. Not really. Okay, that's fine. <laughs> Oh, when you think of the thinking as a sense yes. contact, yes. Well, that works in a, in also quite uh, amusingly. <laughs> when when you get the thinking, when you add the sixth one to the other five, and you have the thinking as a sense contact, um, you will notice, you know, for instance, if you think um, loving-kindness, loving-kindness thoughts, you get a pleasant feeling. And from that pleasant feeling, you get a perception, a perception of, ah, uh, oh, this is nice, right? Yes, looks exactly the same way. And from that comes that, uh, then the reaction, the mental formation, I should do this more often. Or why didn't I hear about this long ago? Or, um, good idea. Buddha knows what he's talking about, or whatever it is that comes up. <laughs> so it's exactly the same thing except that it starts with a thought and then works along the same way. It's also the sense contact, yes. And it's quite amusing to watch in oneself. In fact, the whole thing is quite amusing if one has a business. <laughs> so you're saying no. Never. But because there is also a neutral feeling, we often don't know it. All sense contacts always give rise to feeling, but it can be neutral and pleasant, unpleasant neutral. And because we haven't got any connection to our neutral feelings, we skip by. And usually we skip by those um, sort of um, minor feelings too. It's only when there's really something strong happening that we become aware. So carrying through all thoughts give rise to thoughts? All thoughts give eventually rise to thoughts, yes. Just on and on and on. Without any um, uh, pathway that leads somewhere. You see, this is another one of the very amusing aspects of humanity that we always think we're going somewhere. We're always going to, we're going to get, get somewhere. We're going to either conquer the world or conquer space or conquer... Get the idea. So, uh, in reality, there's nothing. Nothing happening. It's all going around in circles. Day after day after day after life after life after life. <laughs> thought gives rise to thought. <laughs> With in between feeling and perception. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's, uh, well, yes, of course, you could, you could look at it that way. I quite agree with you. Um, you're quite right. But if you look at it in, uh, as being depressing, um, you know, the mind again <laughs> goes in that direction. I don't um, advocate that at all. Uh, I like a bit of humor about the whole thing. Yes.
feeling is continuous, changing all the time. Yes. But is there an advanced jhana where feeling cuts out? An advanced jhana where feeling cuts out. Uh, well, uh, in daily living, there's feeling all the time. Even if we don't, it's either one of the three categories of feeling, mm-hmm. whether we recognise it or not. Uh, yes. And in the jhana, well, uh, pleasant or unpleasant doesn't have to be in, uh, in the uh, higher jhanas, but the experience of anything has to be done through feeling. It's impossible to experience through thinking only. The thought may generate the feeling, but the experience itself has to be the feeling. So feeling is the underlying factor in all our experiences, jhanic or otherwise. Is that clear, Margaret? No. Well, ask again. <laughs> well, maybe I, I can explain. Total liberation might mean an escape from feelings. Why don't you like feelings? <laughs> well, it's just. Um, well, let me explain it. Okay. Is this what? No. Okay. Um, at this moment, you know who's sitting on your cushion, don't you? And how do you know that that's Margaret sitting on your cushion there? How do you know? Memory. Memory. What else? Do you feel like Margaret or do you feel like uh, uh, Aya or do you feel like Debbie or do you feel like Margaret? Well, I assume I feel like Margaret. It's an assumption. Sorry? Presumably I feel like Margaret. Right. And do you feel that uh, uh, Margaret is a person? And uh, a different person than, for instance, from uh, Debbie? Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. (laughs) Right. And now, when there's an enlightened person sitting on that cushion, that enlightened person doesn't feel that he or she is different from anyone sitting around because he doesn't feel that there's anybody in particular sitting there. He knows there's a body sitting there, and a person and the, that enlightened one will also know that in the body there are mind, mind moments arising, but there's nobody there. And since that is a feeling that there's nobody there, he has no feeling that anybody else is different. It's an emotional feeling. It's not thinking you're talking about. It's an emotional feeling. I wouldn't like to put the word emotional in there. Because in our language, that has a connotation of being passionate. Although it doesn't have to be that. But it does have that connotation. You know what I mean? And it's not passionate. It is a feeling. It's an... Hmm? It might be compassionate. Uh, yes, that certainly would arise. <laughs> yes. It's, but uh, in order to make it clear to you, maybe the word emotion does um, need to be in there rather than the word sensation. Um, it's certainly not a physical sensation. It's certainly an emotional feeling, yes. 
And yet I'm a little hesitant about the word emotion because of its uh, linguistic uh, implications. Are we clear on that? Or maybe we have to wait, wait till we get enlightened. <laughs> but this is, um, and this is why, now following on from this, what I've just said, this is why every experience is based on feeling. Yes. Yes. And we really need the feeling. Yes. Yes. Every experience is based on feeling. So there's a, a, a every everything that we know doesn't really have the impact on what we feel. And what did you say was the reason for that? The reason for feeling? You mean the cause? The cause for feeling or what? What do you mean the reason for feeling? Well, well I, think, I can't remember what context that you just said, and that's the reason for it, I think. It's just the understanding. Sorry, I can't no. relate at the moment what I, what you mean. I don't know. Mm. What is the relationship between perception and opinion? No, opinion is mental formation. If I see something and I perceive it... No, the word perceiving in our English language does not have the same terminology meaning as it has in this explanation. In Pali it's Sanya and it's actually just means naming. That's all it means. And of course naming is based on, as I said, on our cultural uh, bias and on our, um, our memory, but it doesn't carry opinion in it just yet. The mental formation has to arise to make it an opinion. Sure, when the little kid says, this is a building block, or this is a toy, let's say, that's his opinion. But we wouldn't say that he has an opinion yet until he exclaims, how can you say that's a clock? This can't be a clock, it has to be a toy. That's an opinion. If I that's your perception. Your opinion is I don't like them or I do like them. Or I'm going to do something for them or they're awful. That's opinion. I don't know, is it? Yes. Oh, yes. sorry. Yes. That linguistic uh, oh, uh, delicacy escapes me. <laughs> I spend too much time in other countries. <laughs> Well, that's derogatory. Yes. Well, you could say aboriginals, couldn't you? That's not derogatory, is it? No, no. Oh, I'll say aboriginals. But what I mean is, if culturally, I'm brought up to name those people in that way, 
Well, if you're just naming them because you're brought up that way, you're not having an opinion. But if you feel badly about them, and you're using that word to feel badly about them, surely you are then expressing already, um, even in a subtle way, your opinion. And your perception would have been, oh, they're black. They must be that. It would have been your perception of it, and then you're expressing your opinion with a derogatory statement. But if you're just naming them as what you see, black, you're not expressing an opinion. And besides, it doesn't matter. It's totally in, immaterial. All you have to do is purify your mental formations. Sure, but as long as they're as long as they're negative, it doesn't matter what culture you're in. They'll always be harmful. So both can be conditioned. The perception only helps you to name something. It's totally immaterial. You don't even know you're doing it. None of none of none of uh, anyone that doesn't practice mindfulness to the least degree, knows that they're using perception. We're only aware of mental formation. And even that most of the time not. So the and purification takes place in the mental formation in the non-reaction to the feeling. That doesn't matter. That was your memory of a typewriter. I was quite all right. But if you had, but when you then said, "Oh, this is worse than traffic noise," that was mental formation and made negative karma because it was a negative statement. That's mental formation. But when you said typewriter, that's nothing. The liar bird was copying the typewriter. And Steve knew I wasn't there to use the typewriter. So he heard the typewriter going. <laughs> liar birds are extremely clever at copying whatever these uh, other birds, even, even dogs, they can copy dogs, cats, typewriter do all sorts of things. One one that I heard about was copying a cuckoo clock. <laughs> so saying typewriter is fine, but uh, saying that's worse than traffic noise, that's the reaction. So the, uh, the knowing of the perception is uh, not where the purification sets in. That wasn't Now, the word ignorance in, in Buddhist terminology means that we are ignoring enlightenment. It doesn't mean that you don't know that that's a liar bird. That's nothing of the sort. It just means that we're ignoring the Four Noble Truths. That's all it means. It doesn't mean that we haven't, you know, gone through university or something. Yes. Um, would it be right in saying that in its true sense an emotion is 
a feeling that has become memory. We went from pure whatever it was, seeing or smelling, through um, feeling. That feeling then became encapsulated in memory as a as an emotion. And it, it's just that emotion seems to come up in regard always to the past. You know, something may happen in the sense perception and it may trigger emotion. And that emotion usually is linked to something that's happened in memory. But it's like the emotion is like a feeling. The emotion is a feeling. And the emotion does not always come up to something in, in reference to something in the past. It may come up to that, but it may also come up to reference to something in the present. Yeah. It can do both. But wouldn't that be feeling? Sure, but feeling has two aspects, physical sensation yeah. and the emotion. So we have to d d differentiate whether the feeling is a physical sensation, like when you bump your toe on a stone, or when you sit and your leg hurts or something of that nature, or whether there's a feeling which is emotional. Yes. And these feelings that are emotional are the ones that that um, uh, rule our lives. They usually are the past, No. Mm -hmm. They're constantly of the present. Of the present in the experience of them, but they they can be shaped. They are because a, a certain emotion, a certain feeling arises over and over again in response to a certain trigger. Yeah. That means that one has, if it's particularly if it's negative, one has not um, changed one's um, negativity yet. But uh, the actual happening is in the present. It's shaped by the past, just like our thoughts are shaped by the past. This thought now triggers the next one, and the next one, and the next one. So do the emotions trigger this one, that one, that one. But it's always happening now. Everything only happens now. Even all that what happened 2,000 years ago is happening now. It only happens now. The whole thing. I don't understand that. No, I don't either. <laughs> <laughs> I was referring to a very particular thing. <laughs> I was going to ask you about that today, actually. About what? Um, about how it is said that everything is happening now, meaning like two thousand years ago and what we're doing no, it's an experience that can happen to one if the sense of I, of me, is um, lost for a moment. The uh, experience can happen that everything, bar none, is an immensity of now. And that experience then, of course, it vanishes again because you can't live with it out there. I mean, you know, you can't catch a bus. <laughs> I mean, a bus was to come in five minutes and not now, you know. You've got to wait. <laughs> so, um, but that particular experience does change one's perspective 
completely so that the um, world as we see it no longer takes pride of place but the world as one has seen it in that particular experience takes pride of place because that is then real and the consciousness which is existing which is overriding can only be now there's no past consciousness or future consciousness there's only now there's no other that's why we have to be and this is one of the very important reasons I'd like you to remember this if you can why we have to guard our mind as if it was the most valuable jewel which it is in the whole world and the whole of the universe it is the jewel which contains Nibbana within, enlightenment within. And if we don't guard our mind and don't protect it from negativities, it does roll on in a never-ending circle, one negativity to the next one, to the next one, to the next one. And that guarding and that um, care that we can give our own mind is one of the most important things we can do for ourselves and the environment. Because what we think doesn't just stay with us. It does have a certain solid quality which also um, relates to others or others can relate to it. It transfers outside of ourselves. Although we think it's all hidden inside, it isn't. So this protection that we have to afford our own mind it's one of the most important practice aspects that we can do. Quite clear. Mm-hmm. Any any other questions? I just have a tiny little question. Sure. So, um, any negative thought we have creates bad karma. Mm-hmm. Yep. You can say it like that. And also creates unpleasant feeling within oneself. Now, it may create unpleasant feeling for others, but that is not the first criteria. The first criteria is it creates first unpleasant feeling within oneself, and it, because of its um, um, karma-making uh, quality, it makes bad karma, yes. Yeah. That's why we need to be so careful. One can't be careful enough. It's, it's really interesting, I mean, you saying um, how important that is, uh, just relating it to my own life and, um, you know, in recent experience in Sydney and seeing people after I haven't seen them for a few years again and just being aware of that in them, this incredible negativity um, well, one person in particular, and uh, feeling really dragged down by that, and not and and feeling I wanted to pierce it um, in some way, and really feeling helpless, you know, because mm. I know it's sort of strange, you know, I don't think they'd understand. It. Quite unconscious, I think people mm. mostly okay. their negativity. Yes, one also needs to protect oneself from being dragged down by other people's um, negativities or um, uh, difficulties. The protection one can afford oneself, uh, there are two possibilities. One is 
to immediately put the mind onto loving kindness and compassion for the difficulty of that person because that is positive. Loving kindness and compassion are both positive and we don't get get into their negative stream. I, I know exactly what you're saying. I mean, I can relate to it very well. When you're out in the world and people are doing the ordinary things, it can become quite um, obsessive with them and uh, one feels as if one would like to do something about it. Uh, so loving kindness and compassion is the first uh, line of defense for oneself may help them, who knows, they may feel it. And the other thing is, uh, if that uh, is at the moment maybe out of one's reach, that can also happen, to realize that a protection is needed and to try to disassociate oneself from other people's uh, thought processes. Not to identify with them and have to, the feeling of one has to respond to it. One doesn't have to. There's absolutely no law that says I have to respond to everybody else's thought processes or even words. And yet, this is so obvious, isn't it? And yet, we never think of it. We think we've got to respond. I just thought, I don't really think I can stand seeing this person again. I'm really fond of I know what you're saying. But in order to protect oneself, and there are occasions when you might have to see such a person again. I mean, there's family and there are, uh, you know, necessary uh, obligations sometimes and duties and so forth. Um, the protection is that one can actually disassociate oneself. One doesn't have to go along with another person's thought process. One can start one's own. One can, if one is... Uh, not uh, you know not noticeable one can start meditating if they don't notice it um, one can do all sorts of things to um, not ha go along with them on that and then if one hears sort of in the distance that they've stopped that and do something else one might you know sort of connect again one doesn't have to be connected all the time yes. if one does that in an argument, of course, if there's somebody having an argument with one and one disconnects, that could have very drastic results. The person would get very angry about it if they don't get a response. Yes, I've found that myself, mm. and that's what I've found so difficult in the world. I've sort of felt that often my practice really goes against me. People just don't understand. You know, I get really angry mm. that um, you're not responding. And yes. Had a terrible, well, it wasn't a terrible thing with my mother, but, uh, you know, she really got angry that I didn't get angry with her. I can relate to it very well. I've had somebody say to me last year sometime, um, that's terrible, you never get angry. And I thought, gee, how nice. <laughs> and I just looked at this fellow and I thought, gee, this is wonderful, you know. But he didn't think it was wonderful, he thought it was terrible. And this is a man who's been meditating for 25 years. <laughs> it's dreadful. Absolutely dreadful. Um, the thing is that one cannot protect oneself from that kind of reaction. There's just no way. You cannot protect others from their bad karma, but you can protect yourself. 
So I can protect myself from a negative reaction, but I cannot protect the other person from a negative reaction. If the other person thinks it's dreadful, but I don't get angry, well, that's their problem. We have to disassociate our karma from somebody else's. Surely we would not like to be um, the cause of somebody else making bad karma. But if there's no intention behind it, if I don't intentionally cause them to make bad karma, there's no bad karma for me. So we can only protect ourselves. By protecting ourselves, we usually protect everybody else too. But sometimes people don't want to be protected. So that disassociating oneself from other people's thought processes um, and protecting oneself thereby from not going into a decline uh, may be quite uh, important at times. Sometimes, of course, uh, you know, you can't do it because you have the duty to respond. Well, you've got to respond, you've got to respond. If you know you're going to visit someone, I'd practice that recently before leaving the world, and knowing that I was visiting someone who knows what she was saying, that there was some reaction there for me, and I practiced the loving-kindness before I went, but didn't really turn that off. Yes, it certainly does. Yes, absolutely. In fact, one can start practicing loving-kindness already when far distant, because then when you see that person, actually, when you already feel, you know, well inclined towards that person. And if you feel well inclined, even though they may not feel well inclined, they still, it helps them. It helps them tremendously. But we can, in the long run, only protect ourselves. We can't protect anyone else. But we can help them, certainly. And the more we have helped ourselves already, the more we can help others. Whatever we've done for ourselves, that we can do for somebody else. Nothing else. This is one of the very important things also, because this is interesting, I think, in the Mahayana tradition, which is there are two traditions in Buddhism, Mahayana and Theravada. I belong to the Theravada tradition. In the Mahayana tradition, the Theravadans are accused of being selfish because they want to practice for themselves. And in the Mahayana tradition, it is said that bodhisattva vows are taken, that you do this to help others. But actually, in, a, in, a, in the actual fact, you can only help others as, as far as you've already helped yourself. And once having helped yourself, you can't help but help others. There's no way you can get out of it. So the whole thing is actually an academic question which doesn't have any real basis in fact. I always have to smile when it comes up because there's no fact to it. It's all conjecture. It's again our mental formations making up those things. But it means again that there's no selfishness in practicing for ourselves because only that we can do for ourselves. So as far as we go, that's how far we can help. Five aggregates. We got away from them, didn't we? Mm. <laughs> and it is an inside meditation project, which is important to do to see them in oneself, 
to realize the arriving of the clinging in the five aggregates. How we know that this is me. And we can only get angry or perturbed when we own the feeling. We can't possibly get angry when we don't own the feeling. This is very interesting to uh, investigate. And we can only get desirous when we own the feeling. But if it's just a feeling which has arisen, just a feeling, nobody owns it, how can we get angry about it? What is there to get angry about? It's just arising. This is a very interesting and very valuable uh, meditation practice. And I'm now I'm only talking about it when, when you sit in meditation and the mind has become calm and then you investigate it, it does make a different impact than just hearing about it like this. Okay? All quite clear? Even though it may not seem like it, but one of these days we will finish this sutta. There are three more things. Three more days. It's really such an important um, aspect. This is a sort of um, uh, typical of the Buddha's teaching, going into the analysis of the person rather than just seeing ourselves in this old accustomed way. <laughs> 